Have you ever wondered how theology, apologetics, and real life come together? Join Pastor Brandon as he covers these topics in his series titled Life's Big Questions. Here's Pastor Brandon. We've been looking at the the truth of the Holy, the, the, the study of the Holy Spirit, the theology of the Holy Spirit the past few Wednesday nights, and I want to pick right up where we kind of left off. And um, we've called this, the, the fancy word for the study of the Holy Spirit is the word pneumatology. And it's that word, that Greek word pneuma means, it's the word translated spirit in the New Testament or wind, breath. And so pneumatology then is the study of the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we understand the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. Because understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit really should be important for every person who has come to faith in Jesus. Because understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life as a person is basic to Christian living. Okay? Um, And the reason for this is that it's the Holy Spirit who makes the reality of truth and the presence of God experiential in our lives, all right? So God's not just given us a set of doctrines to believe. He's given us a person who lives within us. He's given us himself. And and doctrine goes along with that. We want to believe right stuff. But aren't you glad that Christianity, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Spirit of God came to live within you when you got saved. And so... We've looked at the person and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and there are several things that we've looked at so far. We began by looking at the person of the Holy Spirit and the fact that the Bible presents him as a person, not an it. So it's important that when we refer to the Holy Spirit, we refer to him as the Holy Spirit, not it. And so the person of the Holy Spirit, we considered the various symbols of the Holy Spirit that are used throughout scripture. Uh, Symbols such as oil and wind and fire, clothing and so on and so forth. And these are merely symbols that illustrate his ministry in our lives, what he's come to do. And then we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit and the fact that it's the Holy Spirit um, who his sole purpose really is to point to Jesus and to testify of Christ. You know, Jesus told his disciples in in John 14, 15, 16 that the Spirit would not um, testify of himself, but would bear witness to Christ. He'd point people to Jesus Christ. And so the mark of a Spirit-filled Christian then is that you and your life will be pointing other people to Jesus. And it doesn't mean that you walk around telling everybody how Spirit-filled you are, but really your life just points other people to Jesus Christ. And so being filled with the Spirit means that you're under the control then of the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things that we considered when we looked at the work of the Spirit is that it's the Spirit who baptizes us into the body of Christ. And so the baptism of the Spirit, this this all has to do with the Spirit coming to live in you as a person. And as far as an event goes, that happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where the Spirit came to indwell believers. And so this baptism of the Spirit, and I know there are other folks from denominational persuasions that look at things a little bit different, but it's our conviction that Scripture teaches that the baptism of the Spirit happens at conversion, at salvation. It's not something that happens subsequent to your salvation experience. Uh, There's not one command in Scripture whereby you're told to seek the baptism of the Spirit. 
or the indwelling of the Spirit. That happens when you got saved. And so that means that there's not this class system within Christianity of super-Christians who've experienced the baptism of the Spirit and lesser Christians who have not yet experienced the baptism of the Spirit. All of us have been baptized in the Spirit, which just simply means we've been immersed fully in the life of God. That's what that means. All right, now the filling of the Spirit is something totally different. Uh, The Bible does command us to seek the filling of the Spirit. And the filling of the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is controlling me. I'm being controlled and led by the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Spirit means the Spirit is resident. And that's true for every Christian. But the filling of the Holy Spirit means that the Spirit is president of my life. And you know as well as I do that not all of us are filled with the Spirit. Spirit. Uh, at various points in our lives, we, we kind of get in the flesh, don't we? we? Get out of fellowship. We don't lose our relationship with God, but we get out of fellowship from time to time. We disobey. And so for that reason, the, the Scripture uh, commands us to be filled with the Spirit. In the language in Ephesians 5.18, um, in the verses that follow, it's present tense imperative language, which simply means be constantly being filled with the Spirit. Don't let a day, don't let a moment go by in your life where, where you are not filled with the Spirit. And so every day is a fresh opportunity for me to be under the leadership and the direction of the Holy Spirit. All right, that means we've got to intentionally seek that, which means we intentionally put ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the leadership of the Spirit. So uh, the person of the Spirit, the symbols of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit, Uh, I want to transition over the next couple of weeks and specifically talk about what the Spirit provides, the provision of the Spirit. And so in doing this, I really want to take up uh, the question, what is it exactly that the Spirit provides or produces in the life of the believer? This is closely related to his work, obviously, but specifically there are some things that the Spirit does in the believer's life. And it's the Spirit who produces Christ-likeness in the life of the believer. And so you think about, well, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? What is is Christian spirituality? Well, essentially, it's Christ-likeness that's produced inwardly by the Spirit. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life as as a Christian. He works to uh, make you more like Jesus in every way. And, you know, that's really the goal of the Christian life, isn't it? To bring glory to God, uh, to reflect Christ to the world around us. We know that that's not something that we can do in and of ourselves. You know, I can't make myself more like Jesus through the energy and the effort of my flesh. This is something that only the Holy Spirit can do in me supernaturally. And that's exactly what he does. Right, so what exactly is it then that the Spirit provides believers? I want to give you, there are five of these, but I'm only going to come back and talk about the first one tonight, the second one next Wednesday night, and then I'll tackle all three a third Wednesday night, all right? Um, He produces fruit. That's number one. If you've got a study guide, just write that down, and you can go down to number two, and I'll give you the second one here all the way through five, and then I'll come back to number one. But he produces fruit in your life as a believer. Secondly, he imparts gifts. Every Christian 
is gifted by the Holy Spirit in some capacity. Now you say, well, I don't know what my gift is. If you're a believer, you have a gift. All believers have a gift for the benefit of the body, for the glory of God. It's true of every believer with, without exception. Produces fruit, imparts gifts. Uh, he provides illumination. You say, what are you talking about there? Well, that just simply means that it's the spirit who works in your life as a Christian to help you understand spiritual truth. The spirit opens your mind and your understanding to understand the truth of God's word. So when you open up your Bible as a believer, that's not just some exercise. It's not the same as you open up a history book and reading it. This is something totally different. This is supernatural. The Holy Spirit opens your mind and your understanding to, to, to see rich spiritual truth about Jesus that you might apply it to your life and that you might be nourished as a believer. A fourth thing that he does is supply wisdom. It's the Spirit of God in the believer that supplies wisdom to you uh, in the tough situations for life. The hard circumstances that we all deal with, wisdom and decision-making. God's Spirit gives us wisdom. And fifth, the Spirit offers intercession. Even when we don't necessarily know how to pray. You ever been in a situation where you hurt so bad you didn't even know how to pray? But did you know that the Bible says that the Spirit helps you in your weaknesses, teaching you how to pray, interceding on your behalf? It's an amazing thing when you consider all that the Spirit provides the believer. All right, so let's go back and go to number one, how the Spirit produces fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I want you to just think about an imaginary story for just a moment, how once upon a time, there was a handsome prince who had his eye on a young lady in his kingdom. She was a beautiful young lady, attractive in every way. And the prince was attracted to her, but he knew that he had to travel abroad for quite a long time. And he would be absent. So he asked one of his servants to tell the young lady about the love that he had for her. And so he wanted the servant to tell this young lady how wonderful the prince was and how wealthy the prince was. And most important of all, he said to the servant, don't forget to show her some fruit from my beautiful orchard. It was very specific. He wanted this young lady to know that uh, he had an orchard and there was exquisite fruit that grew on the trees in that orchard. And he wanted the servant to tell her this. So the servant did all that the prince requested and he attempted to impress this young maiden with the power and the prestige of the prince. Uh, he took her to the mountain of miracles there in the kingdom. Uh, then he took her to the well of wonders, pointed to the sky with all of its signs that testified how, how handsome the prince was and how wonderful the prince was and powerful the prince was. And so the young lady was very impressed with all of this. She thought about giving her heart to the prince but for some reason, she always held back. And the servant wondered, what more could he do to win this girl over for his prince's sake? And then he remembered what the prince had said before he left. Don't forget to show her the fruit from my orchard. And so, to be honest, the servant had not really been out to the prince's orchard in quite some time. The gate into the orchard itself was very rusty. 
It squeaked and creaked as he opened it. The trees in the orchard were in terrible need of some pruning. But the servant found this unusual tree that was there in the middle of the orchard. And this tree was very special because it yielded nine special fruits, nine fruits. And so the servant began picking the fruit and he placed one of each of those nine fruits in a basket and took the fruit to the young lady. And upon tasting the fruit from the orchard, the servant finally won the heart of this young lady over for his prince. Now, the thing is, that's a fictional story, obviously, but think about this. The fruit of the Spirit that's supernaturally produced in the life of a believer by the Holy Spirit. You ever thought about the purpose of that? What's the purpose of the fruit of the Spirit to begin with? It's intended to give the world around us a taste for our heavenly prince. There ought to be something totally different and remarkable about the character of the person who confesses faith in Jesus Christ and claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And what it is is the Spirit of God in us producing the character of Jesus. And a Spirit-filled believer will be someone who is increasingly becoming more and more and more like Jesus in every way. And, and I think at times when it comes to the, the things that the Spirit produces in our lives, we're often preoccupied with gifts to the neglect of spiritual graces. Uh, we're often mesmerized by a spiritual gift and we seek a spiritual gift of some sort to the neglect of intentional um, um, focus on fruit being produced in my life, character being cultivated in my life. The fruit of the Spirit is far more important than the giftings of the Spirit. Because a person who has a gift but loses sight of the value of character will quickly become someone who becomes disqualified in the service of his king. Are you listening? It's easy to want to mesmerize folks with the gift, but if the character is not present to keep the person in a place of service... Then you got a real issue on your hands. So a lot of times we think, well, we'll win the world to Jesus by the sparkling, um, dazzling gifts that the church has. And we think, well, strong personalities and strong preaching and all of this, this is what's really going to win the world to Jesus. And a lot of times we think, well, God needs fireworks to get his business done. But it's not really fireworks that wins the world. It's just simple fruit that's produced consistently in the lives of average, ordinary people like us, that's on display day in and day out for the world around us to see. And so that's why the ministry of the Spirit is so important in your life, because it's the Spirit who produces the fruit of Christ-like character in your life. All right, now think about that word fruit for just a second. Uh, that word fruit, our English word fruit comes from a Latin word, and basically the Latin word means to enjoy, to take pleasure in. <laughs> That's a good word for the word fruit, isn't it? I mean, it kind of helps you understand that word a little bit better. Um, the couple of times that I've been to Vietnam, I fell in love with this particular fruit called passion fruit. It's the ugliest thing in the world to look at, and it really took a lot of courage for me to work up the courage to actually eat it, because it kind of looked, I mean, you cut that passion fruit in half, and you're supposed to eat the insides of it, and I'm thinking, ooh, that looks kind of rotten to me, but it wasn't rotten at all. I'm telling you, it was the best stuff in the world, 
And I mean, I got to where by the time I was, I had ended, I mean, I was, eat, I was, I was eating more of those for breakfast than probably what I should have. But there was something about that fruit that was satisfying. It was tasty. It was enjoy, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, the Greek word that's used for fruit in the New Testament comes from a word that means to pluck. And so you kind of think of how that applies to fruit and what fruit is. All right? Uh, so I want you to think with me. Put on your thinking caps for just a second and think about fruit. All right? You think about fruit. And um, I'm going to try to draw a tree here. All right? Here's, here's my tree. And let me just put my branches down here. Okay? So let's just, let's just imagine this is an apple tree. Okay? For imagination's sake. Here's your apple tree. And so I'm going to draw me some apples here on my apple. It's going to end up looking like a Christmas tree with ornaments, but it's an apple tree, I promise. Okay? All right? Now think about, think about an apple tree with all of the apples on it, all right? Or any other tree that bears fruit. What are some characteristics of that tree? What are some characteristics of the fruit? Any idea? All right, so, so the, the fruit's got to be ripe in order for it to be picked, right? So in apple orchards, you want to make sure the apples are ripe before they, they're harvested, okay? You ever bit into an apple that wasn't quite ripe? <laughs> I like Granny Smith apples. Sour apples are my favorite apples, but not everybody. A lot of people like the golden delicious or the sweet apples. Where, where's the fruit often found? Well, it falls, it's found on the ground, but I mean, often, it's often found kind of on a limb, <laughs> okay? I mean, you can pick it up from the ground, it's a lot easier, but it kind of grows on the tree and the limbs, but, <laughs> okay? I said put y'all's thinking caps on, man, goodness. What else can you think about fruit? What are some other qualities of fruit? It's attractive, so, so you notice it. Right? You're able to see fruit. It's something that's very visible to the eye. Okay? Now, does any type of fruit grow on any type of tree? You find oranges on apple trees or apples on orange trees or whatever. No. You've got, so, so basically the fruit is reflective of the nature of whatever tree it's found on. Is that right? Now think about all of this. This is such a beautiful narrative, a beautiful illustration of what it means for the Spirit of God, the life of God in a person to show up in tangible fruit, spiritual qualities that are visible, that are in keeping with the nature of the life of God that's come to dwell within that believer. And so all of this is so very important. What I want you to see is that when you think of the fruit of the Spirit, think of this as being the graces of Christ-like character on display in your life as a Christian. And the passage where we see this most clearly explained is Galatians chapter 5. So turn there for just a second. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> That's in the New Testament, by the way. But Galatians chapter 5. A little bit of background, 
to the letter to the Galatian churches. You know, you had some believers there in Asia Minor, Galatia. Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, long about 47 AD, had traveled throughout the region of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And they preached the gospel, made disciples, planted churches. And so those churches that were there, you know, it was really the fruit of Paul's ministry in Asia Minor. Well, after some time, Paul has to write this circular letter back to those churches in Asia Minor after several years because there were some false teachers who sort of came into their, their meetings and basically told them that they really, in order for them to be Christian, they had to become Jewish. And so they had to receive circumcision, and they had to keep the law, and all of this, that, and the other. And so Paul writes the letter of Galatians to sort of combat this false idea that had crept into those churches. And so, you know, what, what was happening in the churches of Galatia went against the truth of the gospel. You know, so much so that Paul begins uh, his letter by simply saying, I'm, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but you've, you've turned your back on the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and you've reduced Christianity to a mere list of, of, of rule-keeping, uh, thinking that somehow... You who began in the Spirit are now going to be perfected in your Christian life through the works of the flesh. And so Paul goes into great lengths to just show how this is, this is antithetical to the gospel of grace that he and Barnabas had preached. How salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not through keeping external rules and that kind of thing. And salvation and sanctification itself, it's not a matter of uh, law-keeping in the energy of the flesh, but it's an issue of the Spirit's work in the believer's life. And that's exactly what he says. In chapter 3, he says, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, you're saved by God's grace. Do you think that you're going to be sanctified by anything less? The fact of the matter is we can't be perfected by the energy and effort of the flesh because it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And so the whole issue in Galatia then uh, is the fact that these believers were dangerously close uh, in sort of losing their gospel foundation. And so Paul writes to address that very issue. Okay? And so um, the way to live the Christian life, it's not simply by taming the flesh and living with a list of rules. That's legalism. You know, you've got two extremes often that emerges in churches. On one extreme, you've got legalism that thinks obedience and sanctification is simply a matter of you uh, sucking it up and in the energy and effort of your flesh conforming to the standard. And you place all of your confidence in the standard itself to make you more like Jesus. Another extreme is license, which basically says, I'm not under law, I'm under grace, which means I can live any way that I want to because I've been forgiven. 
Both of, both of these are extremes that absolutely need to be avoided. And it's the Spirit of God himself who helps us avoid both of these extremes. In many ways, Paul's letter to the Galatians, it, it's almost like a commentary on what he says in Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how... Um, um, sanctification. It's not simply a matter of you exerting more fleshly strength to try to become like Jesus, but it's a matter of you understanding who you are in Jesus Christ. The fact that you were crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, and the Spirit has come to live within you. And then in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul shows how it's the Spirit himself who gives life. He mentions the Holy Spirit some 20 times in Romans chapter 8 alone. You compare that, there's only 13 other times that he mentions the Holy Spirit in the other, other several chapters of the book of Romans. All right, so he's saying the same thing here uh, in much detailed form in, in Galatians. All right, these believers had been given a new nature. That, that happens every time a person gets saved. You're given a new nature. The Spirit of God comes to live in you. You have new loves. You have a new life. And yet we also know that this new nature is found in the old house of our flesh. And the old house of the flesh doesn't really want a new occupant. Right? <laughs> because there's this conflict in the Christian life, isn't there? We'd all just be honest. But there's this conflict where we understand the flesh and the spirit just seem to be in conflict with one another. And Paul explains this in chapter 7 of Romans. He says, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. But what I don't want to do, I often find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Is it a matter of me just gritting my teeth and exerting more discipline and the energy and effort of my flesh alone? No. You get to chapter 8 of Romans, he says, it's a matter of you understanding who you are in Christ and the provision that you've been given through the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Recognizing that it's a matter of you yielding to the Spirit of God who is in you. And that's exactly what Paul says uh, here in the book of Galatians. All right, so it's the Holy Spirit who takes over in life. And when the Spirit of God takes over in your life as a believer, here's what will happen. You'll begin pleasing God from the heart. And that's why sanctification is from the inside out rather than the outside in. The Judaizers wanted to make everything about the outside in. And Paul says, no, it's not a matter of the outside in, it's the inside out. And so you get to chapter 5, uh, go to verse 19. In fact, go back up, um, verse 16, verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit... And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And now the works of the flesh are evident. Now, he's going to be very, very descriptive here when he describes the works of the flesh or the deeds of the flesh. And then you read that list that follows, verse 19, and I'm telling you, you realize no, no true words were ever spoken. The flesh knows how to manifest itself, doesn't it? I mean, you can know whether you're a spiritually-minded believer or a fleshly-minded believer at any given moment. Look at the works of the flesh that will be made manifest in your life. 
If you're dominated by the flesh, look at the characteristics that he mentions there. Works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. Very sordid list of vices and sins that he mentions there. But really, it can all kind of be boiled down uh, to three categories when you think of the works of the flesh. And the first category involves moral sins. He mentions sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. In the Greek word translated immorality there, it's the word pornea. It's the same word we get the word pornography from in our English language. You're definitely in the flesh if you're seeking to gratify desire in an illegitimate way. Sexual immorality. Impurity, it, it, basically it's flagrant sexual sin that goes against God's revealed uh, design. And by the way, in our day, all of this stuff can be privatized too. It can be accessed through a smartphone, pornographic images, Secret life can be lived via text messages. And you think you keep all of that stuff buried, but you know the thing is, sooner or later, the works of the flesh is going to be made manifest. It's going to be evident. Be sure your sins will find you out. Right? Sensuality means it kind of has gone public. It's out of the closet, to use that phrase. Uh, With little to no concern... Who knows or who can? By the way, all of this is characteristic of an unbelieving world and an unbelieving culture. It ought to be different in the lives of God's people. All right, so moral sins. And then the second category involves religious sins. You get into verse 20, he mentions sins that seem to be religious in nature. He talks about idolatry and sorcery. You know what idolatry is. Uh, It's the worship of false gods or God substitutes. You see this over and over again in Israel's history in the Old Testament. They frequently went after other gods even though there was only one true God. And they knew the one true God. But idolatry is no less a problem now than it was then. Because many of those who claim to know and worship the one true God still go after lesser things in our hearts. And many of... Our gods, we may ride in our gods today or wear our gods on our bodies or watch our gods on our little screens. You know, whatever takes the place of God and the worship of God in your life, love for God from the heart, this is your idol and it can be anything and the Spirit has a way of showing you as a believer what has the tendency to be your idol. And so when you fall into idolatry, the worship of God no longer has priority. That word sorcery there, some translations say witchcraft. You say, I'm pretty sure that there ain't no witches in the room, preacher. No sorcerers in the room. Well, when you look at that Greek word translated sorcery or witchcraft in some translations, what about this? The Greek word is the word pharmakia. Same word we get the word pharmaceutical from or pharmacy from. And so what Paul's talking about there, he's talking about mind-altering substances. And often in New Testament times, uh, 
worshipers were known to try to pursue some type of a mind-altering substance or drug for the sake of a high or a religious experience. This often uh, shows up in, in some of the temple worship in some of the uh, Greek cities with some of the Greek gods. The idea is just, it's just drug use. Giving ourselves over to some type of a false Joy, a false high, something that produces something in me that I can't live without, got to have. It's pharmakia, sorcery. This is a work of the flesh, according to what Paul says there. So you've got moral sins, religious sins, and then the longer list are social sins. Sins that involve relationships with others and the way that we relate to other people. And this is the longest category. Maybe the reason is that these are the kinds of fleshly sins that men and women are, who know Jesus are most likely to fall prey to. Sins involving our relationships. I mean, not many believers are going to do drugs, but how many of us are guilty of giving in to fits of anger, outbursts of wrath? And so the thing is, all of this is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but Paul is just sort of mentioning these as just small taste of the works of the flesh. And look at what he says in verse 21. He says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are not the characteristic lifestyle patterns of those who possess the Spirit and those whom the Spirit possesses. Let's just be honest, as believers... Any believer can fall prey to one of these sins mentioned in this list. Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels and the flesh is still very much a real issue. We combat sin every day in our lives. So being a Christian is not being perfect. It's, It's you being perfected. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. And as you walk in the Spirit, you'll be putting to death the desires of the flesh. This is Paul's point here uh, in this passage. So the lives of believers in whom the Spirit dwells and those whom the Spirit fills and those whom the Spirit guides, their lives are characterized by something totally different than the works of the flesh. Look at what he says in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says, against such there is no law. In other words, external rule keeping can't cultivate these spirits and attitudes in your life or these fruits and these attitudes in your life. This is the, the spirit of God, the indwelling spirit of God, the life of God in you working its way out through you. That's what these character traits are. So the fruit of the Spirit. Again, coming back to the board and my illustration here about fruit, it's true that fruit's always visible. And so when you consider the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions here, these are character traits that will be visible in your life and not hidden. Just as the works of the flesh will manifest themselves in some way, so also will the fruit of the Spirit manifest itself in your life as a believer. It will work its way out. It will be visible. Fruit is visible. And then fruit is in keeping with the nature of the tree that it grows on. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said, grapes are not gathered from thorns or figs from thistles. 
You don't go looking for a juicy watermelon in a wild onion patch. Apples grow on apple trees. Apple trees always produce apples. And the reason is that God created fruit to be according to its kind. In Genesis 1, that's a phrase that happens over and over again. And let me tell you something. This kind of thing will drive uh, evolutionists just out of their minds. You know, way back in 1859, when Charles Darwin wrote his Origin of Species, he knew nothing about the nature of the cell, nothing about genetics and all of the modern science associated with that that we now know the basic genetic structure of fruit does not change what you will find is a change of variety among species which did you know that there are more than 7,000 different types of species of apples around the world (laughs) 7,000 but not one time has anybody ever discovered an orange on an apple tree That's true of fruit, it's true of life, it's true of, again, you think about change within certain species like cats. You've got fat cats, you've got skinny cats, you've got live cats, and some people say amen, you've got dead cats, but (laughs) you've got cats. But cats don't give birth to dogs, and dogs don't give birth to cats. The reason is because God has created life within the seed, it's according to its kind, fruit is the same way. It's according to its kind. And what's true physically is true spiritually. Spiritual fruit will always be in keeping with the nature of its producer, the Holy Spirit. There will be evidence in your life if the Spirit of God lives within. And let me tell you something else. Fruit, fruit is for the benefit of others. I kind of reminded of the Wizard of Oz. You know, Dorothy and Scarecrow are walking down the yellow brick road. And they come to that apple orchard. And, you know, Dorothy's hungry and she reaches up to pick an apple off one of those trees. And next thing she knows, that tree is alive and it slaps her hand and says, Who gave you the right to come along and pick my apples? And it kind of shocks Dorothy and she says, Listen, I'm not, we're not in Kansas anymore. But you know, in reality, that's the sole benefit of fruit. Fruit exists for the benefit of another. God created fruit in Genesis 1 before he even created man. And the fruit was intended to be for the benefit of the man and woman that God makes in his image. And so the the same thing's true spiritually. The spiritual fruit that's produced in my life as a believer, it's not for my own personal benefit, but for the benefit of those in my life. The benefit of the body of Christ. You think about when the fruit of the Spirit is cultivated in us as the body of Christ, how, how dynamic the body will be. Or how engaging the body will be. Or what kind of witness you'll have as a Christian when love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, when all of this is being produced in your life, it'll be a powerful witness to people in the world, won't it? So this is what the Spirit does. He produces fruit. And so I would ask myself a question tonight, Lord, is the fruit of the Spirit being produced in my life? Paul goes on in Galatians and he talks about sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Spirit. And you're either sowing to the flesh or you're sowing to the Spirit. He says in chapter six, God's unchangeable law of the harvest, you will always reap what you sow. And if you sow to the flesh, you will reap 
corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. And someone says, well, how do you sow to the flesh? How do you sow to the Spirit? Every time you allow your mind to harbor a grudge against someone else, you're sowing to the flesh. Every time you entertain some impure thought in your mind, you're sowing to the flesh. Every time uh, you linger in bad company, you're sowing to the flesh. Every time you cave in to the flesh, you're sowing to the flesh. But sowing to the Spirit means intentional cooperation on my part as I'm following the leadership of God's Spirit in my life. Would you stand with me as we pray tonight? Our Father and our God, we're thankful, Lord, for the truth of your word. And thank you for the work of the Spirit and all that the Spirit produces by way of fruit in our lives as believers. Lord, we pray that you'd produce the fruit of love in our lives and hearts. Supernatural joy, Lord, that's not the kind of joy that the world knows, which is based upon circumstance, but a deep and abiding joy from within, no matter the circumstance. Peace. Even when the bottom falls out of life, we can live with peace as the Spirit of God is producing the peace of God that surpasses all understanding in our lives. And the fruit that Paul mentions here, Lord, would you cultivate these in our lives? Lord, that we'd sow to the Spirit and not sow to the flesh. Thank you for your work in our lives, O oh God. And I pray that when others would consider us, when they look at our life, Lord, that they would see a life that's been changed and is in the process of being changed and perfected, molded and shaped into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen.